Greetings. Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic, cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. Thank you for listening this week. If you like what you're hearing or enjoy the show, please share it with a friend and say positive things about us on Twitter and Snapface and other apps that all the kids are using. I'm just throwing in a Bill Belichick reference there because I'm starting to get excited about NFL training camp. This is the biggest way that podcasts grow. Follow us on Twitter at, at @clergylay and join our Facebook discussion group. I'm Kirk, a church musician, and this is my brother, Chris, a priest. Hey, Chris, how are you? Doing well, Kirk. This week, we went to Wild Water West, which uh, in the past wouldn't be that big of a deal. I remember when Jordan was two, she's nine now. Uh, I was a, a teacher back then and had summers off and I, we got a, a season pass to this water park. Um, but not only did we get to go to this water park, which is uh, fantastic, uh, but we got free tickets, Kirk. Oh, oh, you know how I like free. I, I like free. Uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> a, even a bigger fan of, free. you know, it's the, your enjoyment of the experience is better when it's free. Cause so enriched. Is it? <laughs> It might be like 25 bucks a person or 30 bucks. It's, it's a lot of money to bring a whole family. Uh, and uh, we got free passes. And, and, uh, and so we went out there. Uh, it, was, it was my first time this summer, Isaac's first time. Jordan got to go a couple weeks ago with a friend. Uh, they have, uh, because of COVID, they have reduced capacity. However, like looking around, uh, the only evidence of a reduced capacity was that there were actually, uh, what do you call those? beat pool chairs kind of those reclining things there are those available where in the in past summers when we've gone um, those are, are pretty full like a place you have to find a kind of a corner to throw your stuff uh but yeah the kids got to uh do the water slides and one we have certain parts of haberman lore which are common to us and we are week by week uh p- pulling back the curtain and letting you the listener <laughs> peek behind the curtain of, of, of Haberman lore. And, uh, you know, when we gather together or on our text chains, uh, we, we bring these things up. Uh, one of the things uh, that we've discovered in the last, I don't know, six, seven years is, is that um, I don't know if it, that, that I make a lot of faces <laughs> or if people take a lot of pictures with me in the background. But over the years, there are a lot of pictures of, of me grimacing, uh, just really strange uh, expressions on my face that, that, that are ca- captured uh, in, in photographic memory forever. And uh, there are, I think, uh, so anyway, going down a slide, the instant I'm about to hit the water, uh, <laughs> Meg snapped a picture and, and noticed as she looked at it that uh, I'm making uh, an almost identical face to one I made eight years ago. 
uh, or seven or eight years ago when I was going down that same slide with our daughter, Jordan. And uh, so we'll post that on the Facebook discussion group. If you're not in the Facebook discussion group, but are, uh, you know, following us on Facebook, um, uh, all you need to do is, uh, uh, I guess, direct message one of us and we'll get you in there. Yeah, that, um, that, original picture going back what six seven eight years ago has uh <laughs> has entered uh, family lore yeah so you you do have like this uncomfortable look on your face that you that, that seems to be caught on camera far far more than it statistically ought to be um like far more than you make <laughs> no, that face it's, in real it's, life it's but, like once a year okay <laughs> Once a yeah, year. but like you don't that that's not a common Christopher face, and yet it, it, <laughs> it continues to show up on camera. But that's not my favorite um, Christopher camera face. My favorite Christopher camera face is the haunted mm. thousand mile stare, like the Vietnam vet stare, like <laughs> the the I've seen things stare, and that we have. I mean, my my uh, my wife has made a. a an awesome pic collage of all your various faces. I think she has a whole folder in her phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I'll let, uh, I'll let her share then in, in the group. Yeah. Well, so your, your beloved niece, um, our, our dear, dear, beautiful Daphne seems to have acquired this ability. We were going through photos from this past trip and there are several faces where I'm like, Oh my gosh, Daphne's making Christopher face. <laughs> and it's either, <clears throat> I guess part of the overlap, <coughs> forgive me, <coughs> part of the overlap is she has this great I hate my life face. That, and that's, that's another category of Christopher photograph face. And again, a face you never make in real life. You are generally of sunny disposition. And so you, you don't have the I hate my life face. And yet, and, um, and yet that shows up. And Daph Daphne has one of those. She's also got like sassy face that like, are you kidding me? You're making me pose for this thing. And then, and then we did find one with that, uh, the haunted, the Christopher haunted stare. So these are all, these are all great subcategories of uh, just, just um, your photogenic, the variety of your kind of photogenic phases or um, photogenic categories, Christopher. It's just, it's really your X-Men power, frankly. What you do to cameras is, is quite special. Yeah, so I'm glad. Um, did you send that one to me? The newest one going down think, the water slide? I think Meg did because she was Meg the one did. who spotted it. Did she do it, a so. side by side with the older one? Top and bottom. Yeah. Top and bottom. That's right. So, That's right. Yeah, that bit. was yeah. spectacular. So, Kirk, I don't know what is it, what it was that you said in the opening, uh, but it, it made me, for some reason, think of uh, NBA uh, resuming last night. Uh, I'm curious how excited you are about the NBA uh, resuming. Okay, yeah. So, I was really excited. And then um, kind of uh, a handful of practices got scheduled for um, my, my youngest son, George. He's got his last travel team baseball tournament this weekend. And so I was, I took him to practice. And so I missed, I missed the NBA last night, but I think it's, it's so fitting to me. It's comically fitting that um, kicking off the NBA's resumption is the Utah jazz whose center is Rudy Gobert who is the, uh, the moron who <laughs> had COVID and thought it was all a joke and was like licking microphones at the press conference. 
and then going out of the whole to touch touch them all yeah, yeah. and in his, and in his if, very if, thick french accent right and and so i saw him kind of uh hit back recently saying i didn't cause the shutdown right nba which is true but, but it, it was but symbolic it was, of a moment but yeah it was it was, f- it was bad uh what's the word i'm looking for like imagery it's bad uh it just looked it was a bad look yeah 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 so i i did not i this is a long answer to your short question. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I'm excited. I did not get to watch last night. So. Well, I mean, it's one night. It's not even the playoffs. You know, we've yep. got how yep. many games until the playoffs. But, but if there's any sport that's, that we know, it, well, if there's any sport that's most likely to finish, it's basketball, considering that the, the season's almost over. We just have the playoffs. And they're the one, they have a small roster, and they're actually doing the bubble thing. So if well, anyone but can they, finish, it's them. But they have to actually do the bubble thing. Right. So right. Are, you, are you hearing the rumors about what the Miami Marlins had been doing to get 12 people infected with coronavirus? What were they doing? <laughs> so, like, the, well, the, to, be, to be clear, the baseball is not doing a bubble. They're not but, doing a bubble, yeah. but they have all kinds of very clear parameters sure, about sure. player behavior. Um, and evidently, they were sampling the local nightlife mm. um, in, in mm-hmm. th- think creatively, dear listener. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's what they were doing. And but so, the N- yeah. NBA, I mean, it's just the NBA players and the coaching staff, sports staff, you know, trainers and stuff um, inside. Uh, like, they're not allowed to leave. If they do, they're... Um, there are a, a lot of strict measures um, as they return yeah. um, before they are allowed to, to come in contact. And just the, the fact that there are fewer of them um, that are unable to leave, it's, it's just a, a better chance of them actually finishing. So, so one thing that I, that I kind of, kind of uh, fixate on with these sports now in the era of in, in Coronatide is uh, how, much they, how different they sound. With no, huh. with no fans there. So in baseball, you've got the piped in crowd noise and it kind of, I, I think it helps it feel less eerie. So I remember watching a documentary in the early nineties that gave me the willies about the, the first generation of cleanup workers in Chernobyl who were there. Mm. And what they found in a couple of people kind of had mental breakdowns. And so they had to pipe in music and just ambient crowd noise and stuff because humans aren't meant to handle vast spaces with nobody and and think about playing in a stadium where it feels like life after people right so the crowd noise sort of makes sense um but i i think i shared with you i got a huge kick out of uh, the bundesliga the german soccer league when they resumed because you hear german men shouting at each other (laughs) at the top of their voices in german which has sort of uh comic and darkly comic historical (laughs) parallels right we think of and German just sounds violent, right? And then people shouting in German makes us right. There's World there's War a great YouTube movies. video of like, you know, well, you don't know what I'm talking about. Where it's like, what is flower? How do you say flower in German? And they're like, Dostaschid. You know, you know, every every single word is like <laughs> right. aggressive. You know, right, 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 right. So no, yeah, it's like um, hospital in <laughs> French, l'hôpital. <laughs> in Spanish, hôpital. In German, Krankenhaus. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Uh, um, ambulance in French. Uh, well, I forget what it is. Is it l'ambulance? It's I forget what it is. That's shame on me. And then in um, in German, it's Krankenwagen, like sick wagon, like it's it's sick house. It's yeah. So yeah, those are those are funny YouTube videos. But but anyhow, I'm like really curious. Like with the NBA, I have I have this anticipation that all you're gonna hear is like sneakers squeaking, right? Because that's what I remember. Like 
getting the giggles in practice in high school. Like when I was lis just listening to practice, when I'd be exhausted and I'd have my head in my lap, like after I'd been, get a chance to get a drink or whatever. And suddenly I'd notice like the sound of a pro basketball practice is like men huffing and puffing and the squeaking of sneakers, which is so much squeaking that, that thankfully the power of the human brain, you know, <laughs> we're able to kind of, uh, otherwise it would drive us literally crazy right? because it, it, um, the, the, the sound is, is eye piercing um, at first and then you kind of get right. to it. Right. Yeah. So, I, did yeah. I say eye piercing, ear, ear piercing. Ear piercing. Eye, eye piercing. That, that would be like Germans <laughs> playing yeah. basketball or something. Yeah. So uh, before we get to the gospel, I wanted to, um, and I'm looking it up right now, uh, mentioned uh, a Pittsburgh Pirates game that I went to. Um, it was the only 15-inning game that I've gone to. Uh, and so I, I just wanted to look up when it was. It was May 8th, 2007, um, Pirates versus Cubs, um, 15 innings. So it's, it, was, it was interesting. Uh, it actually was well attended. It says – You were at that game? I was at that game, yeah. Um, I think I left early. We, you and I must have gone together, and I it just It says that there were the 39,000 people there. I have a hard time believing that, but um, by the 13th, 14th, and 15th inning, uh, it was empty. I mean, there were uh, a few dozen people there, and I could hear people from center field shouting. You know, like we could actually like shout at the players, and they would hear us. Uh, and it was it was incredibly eerie. Um, and uh, the other interesting thing is, like, I'd never been to a 15 inning game, but in fact, uh, there's a seventh inning stretch, but there's also a 14th inning stretch. They're like, hey, it's <laughs> Seventh inning times two, we're going to do take you up to the ball game one more time. Kirk, you ready to go to the gospel? I love it. Let's go to the gospel. This week's gospel comes from Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women 
and children. The Gospel of the Lord. So uh, this gospel reading comes from Matthew 14. We had spent several weeks in Matthew chapter 13. Uh, We finally get to move to Matthew 14, but we skip the death of John the Baptist, which Kirk, I hope hope you're going to say a little something (laughs) about that, um, especially with this tie-in to pop culture, um, particularly the opera Salome by Richard Strauss. Uh, So I I just want to mention this and, and kind of, throw it out there uh, without talking about it too much, but uh, as, as, because I'm going to go a different direction in this text, but it's always interesting how, you know, the early church, how the church fathers uh, would look at, at, at texts and how they, they would read them very differently than us. Now there are people who read uh, biblical texts allegorically as opposed to um, them being actual accounts, uh, historical accounts, uh, and, and that would be wrong to do that. But the early church read a lot more allegorically than we do today, uh, but not in contrast with, with this being an actual account. And, uh, and, and so we want to remember that, um, that there is an allegorical reading, and in the allegorical reading, uh, people talk about how um, the five loaves uh, represented, uh, do, do you know, Kirk? Uh, five loaves, uh, the five books of the five, Pentateuch. Yeah. Yeah. But for them, they would have, they'd have called it five books of Moses. Right. I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry. Yep. yep. Uh, the Torah. Um, and then the two, uh, would, would re- represent, um, Old uh, and New Testament. Well, I saw that somewhere. Uh, and now it's actually, uh, I'm forgetting. Would it be, uh, the Psalms and the prophets? <laughs> I don't even remember any, or the writings, uh, whatever their term would be for them. Uh, but, the, the 12 was the 12 tribes. Of Israel, could could be, but oftentimes I, when they would read it, that was what origin. That's how origin read it, and he was yeah. like, "Let us not speculate as to which tribe was Reuben or which tribe was." <laughs> <laughs> but that's something that we're we're much more uncomfortable doing today. But but to remember that this this is part of our heritage um, is is that the early church did read things um, a little bit differently uh, than us, um, and I'll say that a, a little bit. Uh, I'll say a little bit more about this in a little bit. Uh, what I want to say is is how, how this ties together, you know, old and new, and, and how it obviously looks back at, um, you know, this idea of being fed in the wilderness looks back at, at God's people um, in the wilderness um, after having been uh, rescued from, from slavery in Egypt, and they're in the wilderness, and God feeds them manna from heaven. Uh, they're in a place where there's no food, and God feeds them and provides for them for years, in fact. It's not just, you know, once. And we see this um, in Matthew chapter 6, um, where Jesus says, you know, it, you know your, your fathers ate bread from heaven. I am the bread of life. And, and so he's saying this thing that you're familiar with, the sense of, of being provided um, by God, um, he, you are experiencing today. Um, and it's in me. And, and we see that as uh, John 6 um, I am the bread of life as a Eucharistic text. Uh, and, um, and I want to talk about just how, how um, th- this is a prefiguring of, of the Lord's Supper of, uh, and even the language that Matthew uses. Um, there are parallels. Um, uh, they sat down, they took the bread, blessed it, broke it, uh, gave it to them. <laughs> They mm-hmm. ate, and all of them were fed. Um, 
you could just looking at the parallel language that's used, it's clearly um, looking forward and referring to that. And, and these are all looking forward um, to, uh, you know, there's a term that we use in theology that, um, that lay people, we, we want to kind of introduce to you if you're not familiar with it. And that's the eschaton, the last day, or eschatology. And, and there's just a lot of eschatological uh, language in scripture, and there's a lot of eschatological imagery, and um, this idea of, of a, of a uh, heavenly banquet, um, that's, uh, you know, the Lord's Supper is a prefiguring of that, and in fact, Jesus' first miracle in the book of John, yes, yes um, at I'm the glad, wedding of Cana, I'm glad you brought that up, I was thinking exactly that, is an eschatological kind of prefiguring, pointing forward to the last day, um, the constant, the kingdom is going to be consummated, and, and there will be kind of this eternal feast, and, and we, we catch glimpses and visions of that um, in this, so, um, so this was more than just feeding hungry people, um, uh, but it was, in fact, feeding hungry people. So, I mean, there was a movement in the 19th century to move away from uh, more, uh, uh, to make this more figurative, to take away the miraculous nature of this. Just uh, whether it's discomfort with that or whether it's, uh, well, it's mostly naturalism. It's, it's mostly discomfort with kind of supernatural things that Jesus did. And, and so... Um, what they, what um, some of these more very progressive Christians uh, wanted to emphasize was Jesus as a moral teacher, and what this, and what this, uh, what what they would point to this text doing is um, Jesus. Once they, once they saw, once the people saw that Jesus and his disciples were being unselfish and sharing what little they had, then everyone who actually had brought food along with them suddenly that freed them up to be um, to share the food that they had, and then all were fed. Uh, Kirk, yes, this sir. Is, this is garbage. <laughs> the Jesus who was God, uh, the Jesus who is God incarnate, who was raised from the dead, who ascended to the right hand of the Father, um, uh, he raised the dead in Lazarus. Um, he did miraculous things, and he, in fact, did a miracle of multiplying food um, and uh, teaching about. Um, the coming sacrament of, of Holy Communion and pointing towards our eschatological um, banquet. I'm so relieved that you were uh, referring to that uh, liberal Protestant interpretation as garbage and not this episode, because I thought that all your commentary was spot on. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, I actually have heard a kind of classical liberal Protestant sermon um, uh, trying to wave away the miraculous nature of um, the feeding of the 5,000. And, um, and that's right. Um, and in fact, um, there's, a, there's a certain kind of modern mind um, to which this particular parable seems to be a stumbling block. Um, uh, and, and there's just no uh, waving it away or getting around it. It's either, um, it's either a miracle, truly miraculous, right? 5,000 people. Mm -hmm. um, 5,000 men, well, 5, right? men, so men, more than 5,000 women people. and children, right? right? Right. Or, uh, or, or it's, um, uh, we have to kind of buy into all the, the, the critical theory about, um, these texts and say that they were written much later and, um, kind of mythologizing this folk hero. Um, and, and can, yeah, can, so, can I, can I just say, um, uh, just a very quick, uh, and, and, and I don't want this to be just a, a, a simplistic slam dunk against this idea that, that um, the Bible was revised late. Um, but uh, 
if these were made up stories, um, the, 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 the disciples, those early followers, they would have depicted themselves much differently. Um, they are, they, uh, we will see next week how, mm. uh, how, how we, they lack faith. Um, we will see them act foolishly. And um, this is, and, and, you know, if the men wrote this, then, then um, they wouldn't have had a woman being the first person to witness the resurrection. Um, like that, that does not hold water the sense that that this was revisionist history yeah and and we should perhaps um kind of put a pin in that and re, and, and remember that as something for for another time sure. to sure. to a topic in the episode to think through uh textual criticism and critical theory and um how that affected uh the seminaries in the 19th and 20th century um i i, I think uh I get the sense that in the seminaries, most people under 40 um, kind of hold a, a lot of that in scorn. But that was a wave that spent 100 years washing through the church and really oh, yeah. kind of shook a lot of people's faith. So, and there's still a lot of, lot of kind of old line liberals that, mm-hmm. that really kind of buy textual criticism. Um, that, that so was, seminaries were lost. New seminaries were started as a result of this just taking over. Yeah. And so I, I don't think we should say anything more. If you have no idea what, what critical theory is <laughs> or textual criticism is, we should definitely address that another time um, because it, it definitely affected the church in Europe and the United States um, significantly over the last 150 years. Yeah. So you mentioned the death of John the Baptist, which we have here at the beginning of the chapter. And um, in the first uh, 12 verses, we, we, we skip over that. Um, and, uh, it skipped this year through the uh, the Sunday lectionary because it, it we we will get it in other years, and we don't get it in Matthew's account. We get it, I, I think, in Mark's account. I could be wrong. It could be could be Luke's, um, but in, but in any case, it's it's worth marking um, because, like you said, uh, this is a an event that in different eras of history has really captivated the imagination of both the church and just kind of broader culture. Um, you mentioned uh, the scandalous opera, opera by Richard Strauss, Salome. So this would have been around the turn of the century, 120 years ago, around 1900. Um, and there's, there, there's several scandalous moments. And, and I think uh, some of the salacious details of this story, the death of John the Baptist, that, that um, sort of intrigue our lower, our, <laughs> our, our lower minds, right? We've got, we've got the incest, right? John, John calls out Herod on the incest and that's ultimately what his wife can't handle, right? Well, it wasn't uh, incest, but, not it, incest, was consi- but it was considered incest in the day. Like you're marrying not his to, brother's to wife. Marry- right, right. Yeah, yeah, yep. And, and then we have this other weird thing where- And that's, yeah, that's why she hated him, John the Baptist. And that's, you know, yeah. In a fit of uh, Near Eastern Oriental hospitality in braggadocio, he says, whatever you ask, to the, to the daughter, um, whatever you ask, I will give you after she dances. And that dance, people have often wondered, what was that dance that caused him to say such things? And so that, that dance in the opera, Salome, is called Dance of the Seven Veils. And is her name Salome ever mentioned in scripture or is that kind of apocryphal? Did that come up in, in legend and in myth? Or, or maybe that might be in that's the Jewish good, that's tradition. That's a good question. So, so in, any, in any case, um, she dances this Dance of the Seven Veils in the opera. Um, and at the very end of the opera, 
was the most scandalous scene. And in, in many cities, the opera was, was banned or there was a veil that was put over the head of John the Baptist. But at the very end, you have on, the, on a platter, the head of John the Baptist brought out and, um, and Herod's wife kisses it. <laughs> mm. and, and this was evidently there were shrieks in the audience of Victorian consciences that were seared by this moment. Yeah, so... Um, well, that's, that's quite a bold ask. I mean, uh, it's not, hey, would you execute this prisoner? It is, I want John the Baptist's head here on right. a platter. Yep. So that, it, this is a, a really remarkable story, and, and, and we skip it this year, but dear listener, we're, we're not skipping it because we, we don't think that you should, should read it or it's not important in the narrative. It is important in the narrative, and all synoptic gospels have it. Uh, well, and, and, and you see it, a tie there at the, the beginning of today's reading. Now, when Jesus heard this, yes. he withdrew. Yeah, and that's an important point to make, right? Jesus, Jesus mourned this. This was mm-hmm. his, his cousin, and so, so he withdraws. Uh, you mentioned uh, this, this special moment at Jesus taking the bread and, um, and giving thanks and breaking it. Uh, there, there are several moments in the scriptures where the same pattern occurs, um, mm-hmm. it's not like you or me or certain church traditions oddly fixate on this and say, aha, you see, that is proto-communion right there. Um, this occurs again and again and again. Um, obviously you have a prefiguring of it in the Passover, but, but, but you see it here, you see it in the road to Emmaus, mm-hmm. yep. right? On the, on the night uh, of the resurrection, you have uh, two disciples who are walking to Emmaus and Jesus is sort of cloaked, oddly cloaked, and he, he comes beside them and they talk and he makes as if to go on further as they're stopping for the evening and they say, no, 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 the night is, the night has arrived. You should, you should stop and eat with us. And he, and he in, in the moment that he gives thanks and breaks bread, their, their eyes are opened and they see that it is the Lord and their hearts are strangely warmed. Um, we also see this um, in St. Paul in the book of Acts. Uh, he, uh, he's trying to sail to, um, is he saying to, oh, this is, forgive me, I'm betraying ignorance. <laughs> is he sailing to Italy or Spain? He's sailing to Rome. That's right, because he appealed. He was stuck. He, he got stuck in um, Roman bureaucracy for several years in the court of Herod yeah. Agrippa. And yeah. so he finally appeals to his Roman citizenship. And that kind of triggers automatically some things legally. And so he's, sa- he's sailing to Italy. Right, and he's on this storm. Do you remember this moment in the storm? And they're tossing stuff out, and they're they're wondering should they toss him out, and sort of a, like a Jonah like moment. And he um, he takes bread, and he breaks it, and he gives thanks. And from that moment on, there's a sense in the narrative as if things are are going to be okay. So, and this is kind of a pattern that that appears uh, th- throughout um, throughout scriptures. Uh, I think uh, I'm looking at my notes and surely you have something to say about, about um, eschatology and, and um, kind of that sort of prefiguring of this heavenly um, banquet. Oh yeah. I, I would have thought I, you had a lot to say about that. Yeah. I mean, maybe I've mentioned on the show. I, I don't, I don't know if, uh, if I have, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but, but, but I've heard, I, I had a friend who, someone who I work with in, in our music, um, at, at, at our church. And he said in seminary, one of the exercises that they do is they say, draw a picture of what happens at Holy Communion. And so different people are drawing different things. And, uh, and he said, uh, <laughs> the, the professor noted, um, 
uh, with great satisfaction that he had drawn not just what's happening at the altar, but sort of um, uh, the, the company of all faithful people, um, that, that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, that we are bound together um, uh, with, with those who have come before. I mean, we see this in Revelation as well, right? At the altar, there are the saints, the, the martyrs beneath the altar. Um, and so what do we have here? We have 5,000 people, right, who are listening um, at the feast. And so you have this sense of this, this larger cosmic gathering. I don't know if that's exactly what, what you were getting at. Forgive me if you were trying to set something up on a tee for me and I just swung no, and missed. I just wanted to hear what you had to say. <laughs> yeah. Should we move on to theology? Let's move on to theology. All right, for our theology segment today, um, we had talked about several things that we had wanted to do, but um, this coming Friday, um, we have, what's that going to be Friday? Let me pull up my calendar. Friday the... Fifth? Seventh. Seventh. <laughs> Friday the seventh is the, um, is the day on, on, on all... Anglican and Episcopal calendars for John Mason Neal, priest and reform of the church, 1866. And John Mason Neal is one of the more significant figures for English-speaking Christians that you've never heard of. And so I thought for our theology segment, this would be really good to talk about him. Um, John Mason Neal uh, was an English cleric, and uh, he... Uh, he was a teenager during the Oxford movement in the 1830s. What, and what's he kind a, what's of his, a cleric, Kirk? A cleric is clergy, priest, pastor, Thank minister. You. Yes, um, I, I don't want to use jargon. Um, so he's, uh, he, he's kind of the second generation after the Oxford movement. Um, he's, uh, in, in, he's ordained in 1842. And uh, he does something interesting. He had noticed all around England that uh, churches were in um, terrible repair. Lovely medieval churches, Gothic churches, um, had chancels boarded up, uh, where previously there were stained glass windows. They, these, those things were boarded up. Um, and uh, he writes in 1844, he writes this, and I'll explain it. He says, it is clear to me that the tract writers missed one great principle namely that of aesthetics, and it is unworthy of them to blind themselves to it. Uh, let, me, let me kind of unpack what he was saying there. Who are the tract writers? Uh, these are, we've alluded to this previously, and we'll spend more time on this in another episode. Um, these were the first generation of what would later come to be known as Anglo-Catholic 
thinkers in Anglicanism um, that noticed that uh, Anglicanism, because of apostolic successions and the, the cathedrals in England, actually had an undivided, unbroken line back to the apostles and back to the, the ancient church fathers. And so not only was the Church of England properly a Reformed and Protestant church, but it was, had, was uniquely both that and a Catholic and apostolic faith with an unbroken line back to the ancient church. And so they wanted to re-emphasize that um, for reasons that we can talk about another time. But what he's saying is um, they talked a lot about uh, principles and theology and ecclesiology, that is the theory of what the church is, but they didn't talk about aesthetics. That is, what should the church visibly look like? What should the building look like? What should the colors look like? What should people be wearing? What sounds should you be hearing? Um, where should the light be coming from? Where should you be facing? And he started something called, this is so Victorian, this is, this is just perfect. Listen to this mouthful. He started a society, quote, to study Gothic architecture and ecclesiastical antiques. <laughs> and this was called the Cambridge Camden Society. And later it became called the Ecclesiastical Society. Um, and uh, he, the goal of this whole ecclesiastical society, um, he, there was a widespread sense that, uh, that in, in terms of beauty and loveliness of worship, that the Church of England and generally English-speaking Protestantism had become kind of sloppy and lazy. And everyone was just kind of saying services and plowing through services. And, and there was nothing beautiful or otherworldly or uplifting about it. And the reason it was, to, to, to be fair, the reason it was sloppy um, wasn't just a haphazardness. Like that, that was somewhat intentional. Um, that the, the church in England, as, uh, as it... Uh, progressed from 1549 onwards um was very uncomfortable with things that seemed too romish that's right um, and and um and during certain periods was very uncomfortable and i've forgotten more of this stuff than than i should have but um i mean even reforming as far as like uh you know, the priest, rather than, uh, we've talked about the two different ways of facing, mm -hmm. um, that the priest would um, preside at the end of the table rather than um, facing the people or facing away from the people, that he would actually be at the north end, I think. <laughs> I think that's, that's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, and so, like, the church didn't want to be too Romish, um, and there, there was a high tide of kind of Puritanism. You'd probably disagree with that language, but, like, I would just say broadly, like, just broadly kind of anti-Romish, anti-Roman Catholic. Um, and so the, the, we have different names for this 19th century movement. Um, so Kirk, you used both um, Oxford movement and you said Tractarians. Yeah. Um, and so we, we had kind of um, Oxford and Cambridge movements, which both were Tractarians. They're called Tractarians um, because they wrote tracts kind of looking to re- um, to, to kind of convince the church to kind of regain um, th this, this, this view that the church once had and that we shouldn't just react to um, things being too Romish, um, that we, we, we ought to own our heritage as, as like um, a small C Catholic church, that, that like just because Rome is wrong in these ways um, doesn't mean that we need to reject things that, that are perfectly fine and in fact are our heritage. I hope yeah. that makes sense to the listener. Yeah, so, so how he, he had a plan. He, had a pl he, he, he didn't simply have a complaint 
that uh, as, as he discovered what uh, re- research was coming forth that uh, made clear what the medieval church had looked like, um, the sounds, the smells, the sights, um, and that uh, 19th century English churches were, were rather dull and plain. Um, and, and so he, he wanted to recover some of the, the, the more ancient beauty of these church buildings and, and make mm-hmm. them beautiful places in which God was worshiped once again in the beauty of holiness. But he, so he didn't merely have a complaint, he had a plan. And here's yeah. his plan. Um, there's something in the prayer book called the ornaments rubric, and I'll read it. Um, he thought that this might be the thin end of the wedge to start reintroducing beauty into worship in English speaking Christianity. And here's the ornaments rubric. The morning and evening prayer shall be used in the accustomed place of the church, chapel, or chancel, except it shall be otherwise determined by the ordinary of the place. And the chancels shall remain as they have done in past times. And here is to be noted that such ornaments of the church and of the ministers thereof at all times of their ministration shall be retained and be in use as were in this Church of England by the authority of Parliament in the second year of the reign of King Edward VI. So his research demonstrated that the English church in the second year of Edward's reign um, employed, well, employed what? Um, That's what he was looking into. So what does this mean? It means that the church, the prayer book was saying, the church uh, priests should wear and the church should look like it did um, when Edward VI was, was king for his second year. This was after, so Henry VIII dies, his daughter, or his son, I'm sorry, his son Edward VI becomes, uh, becomes king. And what did the church look like then? Well, John Mason Deal does, Neal does a bunch of research, and he finds out that um, the vestments and the ceremonial practices, that is where the priest was facing, where the altars were, were altars, stone altars up against the east end, or were they tables that were pulled out? Um, what, what he finds is that they were in continuity with the Eastern Church and the older patristic era. Um, and so he decides that we need, we need a revival of these practices from this period. And so these are the practical effects. Number one, a revival in Gothic architecture. And in fact, there's this whole school of architecture from the second half of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century called Gothic Revival or Neo-Gothic. And the Victorians took them with, took this with them wherever they went. Australia, India, Pakistan, <laughs> Hong Kong. You find lovely Gothic churches all across the world. Zimbabwe, Kenya, Nigeria. Um, uh, and of course, here in the United States, um, Listener, in your town, you probably have a lovely Gothic Revival church somewhere that was built in like 1914 or something. Um, I mean, this was even a prominent school of architecture all the way up until World War II. Um, also, stone altars. Um, so there's a revival of stone altars during this period. So if you have been in a Gothic Revival church, you'll see that the altar isn't wood. Um, it isn't pulled out, but it's stone and it's pushed back against the east end or the far end chasubles. Um, A chasuble is a vestment that looks, frankly, I guess, like a poncho. (laughs) Wouldn't you describe it that way? Yeah. Um, Chasubles were considered um, during the Victorian era era to be shockingly Roman Catholic vestments, Mm -hmm. right? Um, It was a a, a pure betrayal of 
of good proper Protestant sensibilities. Where and in they, the, in that era, in fact, I think they were made illegal. Like I think <laughs> yeah. um, legally the the curate or, or the priest would have to wear um, just a surplus, which is a white billowy thing over plain clothes, I think, not even over a cassock. It would just be right. surplus. Yeah. yeah, you just wear a surplus, yeah. Um, and then- which, which, of course, every, everything has kind of meaning, like what that is, is, is that is the, the, the priest um, clothing, clothing himself with the righteousness of, righteousness of Christ. That The white yep. represents the righteousness of Christ. And, and that, that was, there was intentionality. It wasn't just like, just put on a white thing. Like the white thing had some symbolism. Yeah, and these, these are kind of funny to us because these are church disputes that, that no longer <laughs> stir our passions, right? But, but they did at one point, and they did for mm-hmm. reasons that make sense when you, when you look into them. Um, finally, uh, chancels with rude screens. So you may be thinking, what's a, what's, a, what's a chancel? A chancel is everything behind the altar rail. So think if you've ever walked up to the front of the church, and then you'll see a couple of steps and you'll see, maybe you won't see steps, maybe you will, and you'll see an altar rail. And that, that rail, um, there was once something called a rood screen, and that screen was uh, separating the nave, oftentimes what we in America mistakenly call the sanctuary, from the sanctuary, that is the place that held the altar, the pulpit, and the presence of God. Um, and so there was a rood screen, and oftentimes those rood screens uh, after the Reformation in England, were just boarded up. So, so people would just store stuff behind there. Um, and that's where some of the most beautiful things would be, right? The, uh, the stained glass above the altar, the altar itself, um, any, any altar pieces above the altar, any reredoses above the altar. Um, these, these would have often been some of the, the loveliest works of art. The loveliest stone carvings or wood carvings would be there. The loveliest stained glass would be there. Um, and that was all boarded up because you didn't want to imply um, that the sacrifice of the mass, that there was something uh, magical that was happening there. Um, and so in the Reformation in England, those were just boarded up and church just happened all in the nave. Um, and really, in, in this regard, uh, the, uh, John Mason Neal and, and people that were like-minded really won the day. None of us want that stuff to be boarded up, right? All good American Protestants, when they walk into a church, like gazing at the stained glass above the altar. Wouldn't you agree with that, Christopher? When yeah. no, no like good Presbyterian or Methodist says, oh, that's too Roman Catholic, right? We all understand that mm-hmm. um, it, it, it creates a sense of holiness and beauty and loveliness and worship and, and reminds us that we are in the presence of God. Um, and then chanting in the liturgy. So um, if you've ever been at a service with chanting in which the priest sings anything at all, um, you, you, you owe that, the revival of that to John Mason Neal and, um, and his cohort, uh, because in, in Protestant England, everything was spoken. Um, why? So that you could understand the word of God, right? And we get, we get why that change was made. Um, and yet, um, if you've been to a service where stuff is chanted, um, I think we're far enough past the Reformation where we can acknowledge that there is, there's a beautiness and a holiness that is sometimes lent to that. Now, I've, I've gone through all of that, and John Mason Neal really won the day in, um, if you've ever been in a service with any of that stuff, um, we have him to thank for it. Uh, but, but even perhaps more importantly is what he did as a translator of hymns. Mm-hmm. And it's simply stunning what he did. Um, he was, a, was, an, was an amazing archivist who poured through 
medieval and patristic hymns in Latin. He was a, he was a rather remarkable Latin scholar. And he translated dozens and dozens and dozens uh, of, of old hymns into English, uh, sanding down some of their thornier <laughs> Roman Catholic uh, doctrines to, uh, to, so as not to prick the tender consciences of Protestant Victorian Englishmen and Englishwomen. Um, but let me just give you a short list. Um, all glory, laud, and honor, that uh, great um, Palm Sunday Palm Sunday hymn. Uh, a great and mighty wonder, O come, O come, Emmanuel, of the Father's love begotten. Sing my tongue the glorious battle. Um, ye sons and daughters of the King, good King Wenceslas looked out. Um, uh, a song of gladness. Uh, Christopher, I know I had I'd listed things before the show and I'd lost lost the list. Um, do you remember any others? <laughs> Blessed thought, City, Heavenly Salem. I thought Salem. I had written down a list, but maybe I, I didn't. Of the Father's Love Begotten. Yep. Christ has made the sure foundation. Mm, I, lo- I love that one. Um, oh, sons and daughters, let us sing. Yes. Come ye faithful, raise the strain. Kirk, uh, I don't know what you've planned for music between segments, but would you uh, be sure, un- unless this throws you off to make sure that each of them are, are John Mason Neal. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, uh, oh, here, here we go. Uh, good Christian men rejoice. Good Christian men rejoice. Oh my gosh. Let's not turn this into a hymn sing, but especially since I, I like, I don't necessarily have my, uh, my voice today. Yeah. But in any case, uh, if you've ever, ever sung any of these or others that I haven't named, um, uh, he revived, uh, the sense for, for, um, English Christians and English speaking Christians, whether in America or Australia or Africa or wherever, um, that, that we sing with the church, not just of the last 30 years or 100 years, but of the last 2,000 years. Um, and so our hymnals are rich with ancient hymnody primarily um, in, in thanks to him. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so, could I, I wrap up with, with just a few minutes? Um, you should so, do that. So you talked about uh, the uh, how he led a, a movement that that began to reappreciate aesthetics. Yes, um, where the Oxford and Cambridge movements, the Tractarians, had done a wonderful job of of restoring kind of the sense that matter matters. Yes, um, that that as we as God's people are gathered for worship. Um, well, just in all of our lives, matter matters, that, that, that God created the world and called it good, um, that we hope for the resurrection of the flesh, that um, one day our bodies will be raised, that, that, that what we do with our bodies matters, and what we do during our worship with our bodies matters. There was kind of a reappreciation of this, where um, at kind of high tide of, of Puritanism, it was just like, nope, uh, we're going to show up and we're just going to get the information. Uh, right. All we need is the word. We need to, we need to be preached at, and and that's what we need. And and so uh, the, these tractarians emphasized uh, kind of the sense of 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 what we do with our bodies matters when we stand, when we kneel, uh, when we sit. Um, and uh, when we say matter matters, that means a lot of different things. But it certainly means that. Um, but but this, I do love this idea of 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 a reappreciation of art and beauty in worship. Um, you know, uh, we, we can see kind of gaudy Baroque cathedrals that are a little bit too much. But then <laughs> there was the reaction to those um, in kind of painting over um, frescoes and churches and, and painting over things and, and making buildings very plain. 
And um, there's a pastor friend of mine who um, described his evangelical free church. He, and, and, and as he described their worship, he said, we don't believe in sacred spaces. And so very intentionally, they worship in a windowless auditorium. It's just, and I'll tell you what, the pastor, like no one speaks except the pastor. No one really uh, participates. They, they sing, but then it, the pastor's on the, on the stage. I think they probably call it a stage. And he preaches, like, and, and he brings the word to the people. And that's a great thing to bring the word to the people. Um, but I, I would say that, that um, it's not necessarily the space um, that, that necessarily, um, uh, it, it's, it's what happens in that space that makes it sacred. It's not like, oh, if, if you um, put in stained glass, suddenly that makes the, the place sacred. Um, and, and so as a church planter, um, as someone, uh, there, there is a sense that we can, uh, we can do church anywhere. Um, and, and we, uh, for a couple of years now, have been in a gymnasium. And uh, during COVID, we, ha- we haven't been gathering, but we will gather in a park because you can set up, an, you can set up a table. And I'll say table. Um, that, Cranmer used the word table, Lord's table. Yeah, um, sure, yeah. And, and, and there are, uh, it's not worth talking about the difference between a table and an altar but, uh, <laughs> or that, that language, but you can set up a table anywhere. Um, and that's the beauty of, of the gospel. That's the beauty of the kingdom is that um, we could set up a table in a park and, um, and, and like that sanctifies that space, um, uh, f- you know, for that time. Um, but uh, we as a movement, um, as a broad movement, want to restore um, art and beauty. And so we lift up and we praise and um, we celebrate artists um, uh, in, in our diocese. Uh, and um, that's, that's a really cool thing. And I think it's a thing that uh, as we um, seek transcendence, as we worship, um, I, th- I think art is a part of that and beauty is a part of that. Yeah, let me let me just say uh, say something um, to dovetail what you were saying about the kind of the, the very Puritan Protestant sentiment that that um, you you worship you gather just in a space a practical space four walls and a ceiling to hear the word of God and that's that um, intentionally yeah it's not yeah, just yeah. like yeah it's, it's just like no we don't want ornamentation so there's something there's something that in 1704 something called Queen Anne's Bounty um, that was passed by Parliament. And under the reign of Queen Anne, surprise, surprise, um, in, 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 they tried to address two things. Number one, there were a bunch of um, bunch of churches in which uh, Church of England clergy were making less than fifty pounds a year, so as to um, to to pay, help pay underpaid and poor clergy. But the other thing it was doing was um, uh, England was slowly urbanizing, and uh, the 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 urban parishes were were um, flooded. Um, and, and they needed to build urban churches. And so you have 50, a commissioning um, for building, a commission for building 50 churches in 1711 um, that's passed by parliament from Queen Anne's bounty, this money from Queen Anne that was set aside specifically for that purpose. Super cool. We need, by the way, a new Queen Anne's bounty mm-hmm. in 2020 for the ACNA. Mm-hmm. We need some wealthy lady <laughs> to set aside, um, say, $5 billion dollars. And, um, and, and we need to build some lovely spaces. But anyhow, what they did, if, you can if, see- Wealthy lady, if you're a listener, please email me. Yes. Thanks. So, so you can see how, how um, in some cases, suffocatingly Protestant uh, English Christianity was. Because in almost all of these buildings, some of them lovely, built by Sir Christopher Wren, uh, very Georgian, kind of neoclassical at the time. Uh, what's in front, in the middle, front and center, is a pulpit. Some of these didn't originally even have organs in them. So uh, it's just music was an afterthought. Um, 
Um, the beauty, they're structurally beautiful, but they're, but there's no art in them, right? The beauty is in kind of the, the columns and, and neoclassical structure. And um, that's, that's what uh, uh, Protestant Christianity was like before uh, people like John Mason Neal and the Ecclesiastical Society. You showed up in four walls and the preacher was front and center and you heard the word of God, amen to that. And you heard the word of God preached, amen to that. But that was all. And so um, if, if you've ever seen a, an Anglican or Episcopal service and you thought, wow, that feels really Catholic, um, both for good and for ill, you have people like John Mason Neal to, to thank for that, making it richer and deeper and, and more of a, um, as you mentioned, all of the senses are engaged. So uh, we've, we've gone, gone really long in that segment. Yeah. Let's, um, let's move on to, to culture, Kirk. Yeah. Bleep, bleep, bloop, bloop. We're going to talk science fiction. <laughs> oh my gosh. Do we get like um, Wookiees <laughs> and uh, the Force? Is that what we're going to talk about? Yeah. And uh, we like, had a listener. That's, that's, who what we call, that's what we call hard sci fi, right? Is, is like the Force and Wookiees. And, oh, yeah. That's total hard sci fi and laser and, and you, swords. You, laser swords. And you can't get, um, you can't get the the what do you call it the fuel whatever the unrefined fuel. coaxium you can't get coaxium hot kirk that's that's right um not to mention adamantium or unobtainium <laughs> right two two of the more super plausible uh, indestructible materials so, that have been in for, various universes vi- vibranium so yes. so for those who have no idea what we're talking about um i'm joking because uh kind of the most popular uh kind of space uh movies are star wars um which are are more space westerns, they um, space operas. Sometimes they're called space operas, uh, but but far from um, from sci-fi. Just because it's in space doesn't mean it's sci-fi. There's and there's a strain of sci-fi, and, and I'm speaking way beyond my knowledge. But I'm just differentiating myself uh, and saying uh, there's there's um, something called hard sci-fi, which actually tackles the idea of like um, how how would a human body handle uh, the the g force uh, of of leaving an atmosphere. Yeah, and things like that. So, Kirk, you've been reading The Expanse. I've been Talk reading The Expanse. Yeah, and, and I'm sci-fi. so happy that you introduced the segment with bleep, 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 bloop, because we have a listener, shout out to Kevin, who uh, <laughs> was really missing my, uh, my robot voices. So mm. I, I've got to make sure that I, I reintroduce some robot voices for, uh, for this segment. Yeah, no, I've been reading The Expanse. Uh, uh, about a year or two ago, I started watching The Expanse on, uh, on Amazon. And I, I don't know uh, for our married listeners, if you ever start a series and your spouse just simply will not join you with it <laughs> and you just in the end kind of run aground because it's hard to find, you know, I don't know, whatever, 20 hours to kind of plow through a whole thing um, w- w- without them. Uh, well, that was the case for The Expanse. Um, but, but I had in the back of my head, 
And then uh, recently I'd kind of made it through my reading list and I wanted to start a new reading list and I put this at the top and I got it. And man, I just destroyed uh, uh, book one from, of The Expanse on this past vacation, uh, Leviathan Wakes. And uh, The Expanse is an example of hard sci-fi. As you say, Christopher, um, it tries to take seriously um, how would all this work? Um, if, if humans do leave Earth, not leave Earth, but expand beyond Earth, um, how could it possibly work without, uh, I mean, let's be honest, uh, warp, uh, would be, a warp drive would be super cool. Um, it, it's probably unlikely. Um, uh, which, in, that's Star, Star Trek. Uh, in Star Wars, it's uh, light speed. Light speed would be super cool. But even Star Wars doesn't take light speed seriously because we no. measure astronomical distances in either astronomical units or, or light years. And we're still light years away from uh, the nearest system, right? So that, if we took this seriously, even within our galaxy- <laughs> it, would take, it would take years. <laughs> it would take years traveling at light speed to get from one system, star system to another. So um, no, the, the Expanse uh, takes, uh, takes you, the reader, seriously that- um, that you can kind of understand some, some basic kind of 10th grade science. Um, so for example, the human body uh, in zero gravity, uh, some things start to fail within several months. Like uh, oddly, your optic nerve um, requires gravity. Like you stop being able to see um, certain, uh, certain organ systems uh, kind of re really begin to lose functionality. Obviously the, the muscular atrophying is, uh, is, is difficult and real. So the, in the expanse, um, kind of the standard, the, the speed limit, not the speed limit, but the standard kind of rate of traffic is 1G. What's 1G? 1G is the speed at which when you're traveling, you'd be pressed against the floor at the same kind of, for, with the same force with which our feet are pressed to the floor on Earth, right? Now, doesn't that make sense to the human body? Like if you're traveling between planets that you travel at about 1G, because then it doesn't put the human body under stress and we can spend months in space, years in space. So as, as you travel through space, you're not sitting in a cockpit like in a plane looking forward. You'd actually be standing kind of sideways. That's or right. Or parallel to the direction you're going. Exactly, right? Ah. But it doesn't feel strange, right? Because gravity feels, you know, quote unquote, right. natural to us. You're pulled, you're pulled to the floor, yeah. So, so what, Christopher, you may ask me, what happens if you, if you have an emergency or a war where you're trying to flee from something and you need, to, or you need to get somewhere in a hurry? Well, what happens if you need to get the, the spacecraft up to three, four, five, six, oh, seven Gs? Um, it's so interesting. So um, there are, there are um, in, this, in this book, it takes seriously the fact that the human body would be crushed, like knocked unconscious and crushed under seven Gs. I mean, that's like being stepped on by an elephant, right? So you, um, in your seats, you uh, get injected, needles come out of the seats and you get injected with this cocktail of endorphins uh, and, uh, and that allow you to stay conscious um, during these brief periods in which you're, whether you're in a battle or you're retreating or something. Um, so that's really interesting. Um, uh, other things that it took seriously uh, in order to terraform the moon, which in this is called Luna, and Mars, they need a lot more resources than the Earth can provide. Where would you find those? The asteroid belts. And so there are humans, humans have uh, begun to colonize the asteroid belt, and they're called belters. But there's not, there's not Earth gravity in the asteroid belt, so they take asteroids and they spin them up 
to about 0.3, 0.4 Gs. Well, what happens if a human is born at 0.3 or 0.4 Gs, one third of Earth's gravity, and spends, you know, 60 years there? They're going to be, you know, two feet taller than us, right? Their heads are going to be larger than ours. Um, and so it starts to take seriously what kind of... I, I, this word is fraught right now, but racism or speciesism. Do you have a new species? Um, so there, there's tensions that exist then between belters and, and Earth and Mars. Um, it's all very interesting. It's, yeah, Kirk, I remember you telling me um, some of the differences. Uh, they can recreate uh, the, the flavor of many things, but not coffee. That's um, right. And so the coffee <laughs> in, in the asteroid belt is terrible, right? Yes, the coffee, coffee in the asteroid belt is terrible. Cheese is fake because... If you have cheese, you need cows, and a cow's not gonna like. What's a cow gonna do in a third of a g? Right? <laughs> yeah. So it's it's really interesting. It's so great. But I also kind of wanted to wrap up with this thought. I I love science fiction, and and so many people have loved science fiction since the inception of the genre, with uh, with Jules Verne, nineteenth uh, century Victorian Frenchman. Um, and what is it about science fiction that we love? Um, and I was thinking as well, in uh, in light of this announcement <laughs> from the federal government that there exists a thing called the Pentagon UFO Unit, and this Pentagon UFO Unit is going to make some of its public some of its findings public shortly. So, what implication does this have for Christianity? And I was um, before I kind of, kind of toss that to you, Christopher. I was reminded of the fact that Martin Luther. And, uh, and other reformers, and for that matter, the Vatican in the, uh, you know, in the 15-teens and 1520s had did a lot of head-scratching and prayer and thinking about the implications of the fact that there was this whole continent, new continent, the New World, North and South America, um, that had never encountered the gospel. And what did that mean um, in light of the, the fact that God had revealed himself, but not, we think, to uh, the Native Americans? Um, what did this mean for uh, kind of the plan of salvation? Um, so what does this mean for extraterrestrial life and for God's, God's revelation and creation? Uh, Christopher, what do you think about all of this? Are you asking uh, if, if there were evidence of extraterrestrial life, would that, uh, would that be an insurmountable uh, impediment for my faith? Is that what you're asking? No, no. Just okay. uh, what implications does it have? It does it have for the doctrines of revelation and salvation? Well, uh, let me open my prayer book here to our communion liturgy, which I love. Um, we have, uh, and Kirk loves that there are two different communion liturgies. That he's uh, speaking ironically. I don't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we have the Anglican Standard Text, and we have the uh, Renewed Ancient Text. Um, and uh, the beginning of the prayer of consecration. So if you've ever been part of a, a liturgical communion service, typically there's a sursum corda, the Lord be with you, also with you. Lift up your hearts. So um, sursum corda means lift up your hearts. Uh, and then there's um, uh, there's a proper preface for the day. Um, and then there's the sanctus, which, which um, holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might. Uh, and then there's the prayer of consecration. And this, this is a, one thing I love about it. I've, I've mentioned when we talk about memory is that it tells kind of the, kind of the meta narrative of, of what happened. Um, and here's how it starts. Holy and gracious father in your infinite love, you made us for yourself. 
And then it continues, uh, when we had sinned against you and become subject to evil and death, you and your mercy sent your only son. But um, it, it's kind of a statement of faith. In your infinite love, you made us for yourself. Um, is it possible that God made extraterrestrial beings for himself as well? Uh, th that would not be in conflict with, with what we believe as Christians and, and what God That's has right. revealed to us. Yeah. So, so that, that I, I'm not, uh, that's not a complex answer, um, but, but these things are not in conflict. It's the sense that God made us for himself and um, has revealed himself to us. Um, and uh, we, we are fallen um, and, and through Adam's sin, we are all sinful and we were born sinful. And through the, the, the work of Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to the father. Uh, that does not in any way conflict. If, if there were to uh, come to light evidence that there were, intelligent life out there that that would not conflict with with the faith that we have um there are two other objections that the, the christians often have the, 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 those christians that believe that our christian faith um uh, and and scriptures and the way we understand revelation that it uh, that it renders impossible the existence of uh, alien life forms um uh, number one the concept of the image of god um, and I think that that that's a small and cramped view of the image of God that mm -hmm. he would be a biped, a biped who walks upright with kind of, hmm. you know, five fingers and ten toes. Um, I think the image of God um, is is something more that, that we are rational beings that are capable of of of, of love and compassion and, and rational thought. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's probably more what the image of God is meant. Uh, whereas image bears. Um, and then the third thing uh, that is often a rejection um, has totally exited my mind. <laughs> which is, so <laughs> we don't have to go into that. Yeah, but I don't, I, I think that um, we can be kind of, kind of ex excited and, um, and, and not as Christians kind of be fearful that, that, that this will somehow debunk the Bible or debunk our faith or, or prove that the universe is larger than our God. I, mm. I think we don't have to fear. We don't have anything to fear in that regard. And I know there are some people that I know and love who disagree with me that think that, that the whole concept of aliens are is a profoundly anti-Christian concept. Um, before we wrap up, Christopher, um, we were talking about John Mason Neal, and mm. I had likened John Mason Neal to King Josiah, um, who found the scrolls of the law and the prophets, well, not the prophets, the law, um, in the rubble of the temple because Israel had descended into paganism, or Judah had descended into paganism, and I had said that uh, uh, that John Mason Neal was like a Victorian King Josiah, um, discovering something lovely in the rubble of the temples of England. Speaking of King Josiah, I want to give a shout out to our wonderful cousin Josiah. On vacation, just a, a, a really strange kind of randomness, we really strange situation. We were invited to FaceTime with you know, a gathering of. Uh, female cousins that, that happen to FaceTime on Friday night sometime. So Josiah, Alicia, and Amy. Um, and Abby. And Abby. <laughs> oh, that's so awesome that I forgot Abby. We love you guys. Uh, it, was, it was fun seeing you. We hadn't talked to them in at least five years, I would think, if not more. Yeah. So that was great. Josiah, shout out, shout out to you. All right. Christopher, shall we end in prayer? Let's. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Let us pray. Almighty and merciful God, 
It is only by your grace that your faithful people offer you true and laudable service. Grant that we may run without stumbling to obtain your heavenly promises. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. O God, the source of all holy desires, all good counsels, and all just works, give to your servants that peace which the world cannot give, that our hearts may be set to obey your commandments, and that we, being defended from the fear of our enemies, may pass our time in rest and quietness, through the merits of Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. Amen. Lighten our darkness, we beseech you, O Lord, and by your great mercy, defend us from all perils and dangers of this night, for the love of your only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. In the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Next, Next week, week, Christopher. Oh.